0: We're wired for
1: sound now, huh? Good stuff. Good stuff. Let me open up my message here. This morning I'm going to talk about, you ready? Corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. Now I know some of you just squirmed in your seats, right? And I know others said, I chose the wrong Sunday to visit this church, (laughs) right? Yet unbelievably, still others got excited. Curtis is going to talk about corporate prayer. The truth is we all have an opinion on corporate prayer. And that opinion is strong enough that it produces an emotional response. And if I'm truthful, truthful, It's an intimidating topic to teach on. In my study, I came across this Oswald Chambers quote. Chambers said, Beware of the danger of preaching in prayer, of being doctrinal. So that made me comfortable as I was moving ahead. Very comfortable. But if I'm being truthful, I love corporate prayer. I absolutely love it. It is my favorite form of prayer. But this wasn't always the case. This wasn't always Curtis. A few decades ago, I was the one squirming in the pew when someone said corporate prayer. Scared me. Now corporate prayer can be one person praying, like Dan just was, while others listen and silently affirm and silently add to the prayer. You do that, don't you? When Dan was praying, you added to it. And corporate prayer can be more than one praying, all the way up to everybody praying. Like this morning, I've been the only person praying, and I've been one of 1,500 souls praying at the same time on their knees before God in one room. As true disciples of Christ, we live in the most amazing time of corporate prayer. We were born this side of Pentecost. The first hint of corporate prayer I find in the Bible is back in Genesis 4.26. Genesis 4.26 reads, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord so that's really the first hint that there was corporate prayer going on in the Bible later we see God speak to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9 1 in Genesis 9 1 Moses records and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so Noah and his sons were before the Lord God was talking to them. they were talking to God corporately and we see Jacob bless his sons at the end of Genesis placing the hands on them. Later we see Moses praying for Israel multiple times. But it's not until after Christ rose from the dead and truly after Pentecost that we see corporate prayer in the Bible as it should be today. Some 21 times prayer is mentioned in Acts and it's almost exclusively corporate. Almost exclusively corporate in Acts. Still, why is it so scary for us? Well, I think if you read Isaiah 6, it makes it pretty scary, doesn't it? Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Look all the way back, not, not much farther than uh, Psalms, a little before Psalms. Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God. And so when we go, and go to prayer, when we find ourselves on our knees, we find ourselves in the throne room of God. And you have to realize that. And it's a scary place. Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two each... He covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. That's a pretty scary place to be, isn't it? Scary. And this morning I want to ask you, what is your response to corporate prayer? What is that response? let me go to the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we find ourselves before your throne, before the King of kings and Lord of lords, we know that you are good. And we know that you are sovereign. And we know that you are immutable. And I pray that hearts are prepared this morning to receive your word. I pray that uh, our place and our position and our response to corporate prayer would be one of joy, of wanting, of drawing near to you. Lord, I pray that you bless the flock. I pray that you speak through me in a mighty way. And I pray that your kingdom is furthered to your glory and your honor. Amen. So as the jester longs to play Hamlet, I attempt to share my treatise on corporate prayer. So today we're going to spend our time in Hebrews chapter 10. So let's flip back to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to spend our time in 19 through 25. When the reader arrives in Hebrews at verse 19 of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews has just finished sharing the main body of his letter and exhorts his readers to act upon the doctrine that he's made so abundantly clear. And so there's truths that we find in this passage that is just layers of teaching that's gone along all through Hebrews. And we find the writer exhorting his reader, exhorting the true disciple of Christ, and quite frankly, exhorting Fellowship Bible Church to make the utmost use of the blessing of being birthed anew. Understand that. You're born again, and he's saying to make the utmost of that blessing of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's look at 19 through 25 here in Hebrews chapter 10. for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, it is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawn near. So you may be asking, why this passage, Curtis? If you're going to speak on corporate prayer, why this passage? Well, it's because verses 19 through 21 remind us what Christ has accomplished on the cross, what is there for us, what he's enabled us to be as disciples. And in 22 to 25, we find a threefold invitation. We see, let us draw near. We see, let us hold fast. And we see, let us consider. As Warren Wiersbe puts it, this threefold invitation hinges on our boldness to enter into the holiest. And this boldness, this freedom of speech, rests on the finished works of the Savior. Right? So Jesus accomplished this, and our response to this we see in the, in the uh, last verses. So let's look at our first truth concerning the Christian and corporate prayer Christians have confidence, confidence. Confidence, do we have confidence? Do you have confidence? Do you have confidence in corporate prayer? Are you the one that was squirming here this morning? Verse 19 says that if you're a Christian, you do. You have that confidence. You say, Curtis, I I don't. I don't have that confidence. Let's look at verses 19 and 20 and see what we find here in Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Confidence to enter the holy places. What are these holy places? that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Both in the Ten of Meaning, when Israel was in the wilderness, and the temple after it was built in Jerusalem, there was the holy place, and inside the holy place was the most holy place, the holy of holies. And what separated the holy place from the the most holy place was a curtain that was 80 feet tall and the thickness of a man's palm. Now, inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? Who remembers? What was inside there? Pardon me? Yeah, the staff, the Aaron's staff that budded, right? What else? Pardon me? The Ten Commandments. And one more thing was in there. What was in there? Yeah, the jar of manna, right? You got to save that jar of manna, right? Got to save that jar of manna. So now once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, and would make atonement for the sins of all of Israel. And above the ark was the symbolic dwelling place of God. The high priest would sprinkle blood of the sacrificed animal on the lid of the ark, right? Which was known as what also? The mercy seat, correct? And as God looked down above the ark, above the mercy seat, and when he looked down upon the law, which had been broken, the blood had been sprinkled on it, and he could not see the broken law. It symbolically covered the sins of Israel. Symbolically, God could not see their sin. But why do I say symbolically? Why do I say symbolically? Because all that took place in the temple pointed to the one true lamb without blemish, Jesus Christ. That's all that was going on. So let's flip back a couple pages, maybe maybe only a page on yours, maybe not, to Hebrews 9, 12. And I'm going to read 12 to 14 to you. He entered, Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an ed- eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god it all pointed to jesus christ and he went past the holy place to the most holy place and offered himself the lamb without blemish purifying as we're told there our conscience from dead works to serve the living god so when christ said it is finished up on the cross he gave up his spirit the veil the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, was torn from the top to the bottom, right? And symbolically, it is God taking that curtain and giving direct access past the holy place to the most holy place, direct access to God. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, we may receive mercy and find grace in times of need. You say, but Curtis, I still don't have confidence. I still don't have confidence to participate in corporate prayer. It's just not me. Now this might hurt a little. Are you ready? But if you don't have confidence to enter the holy place in corporate prayer, your confidence is not in the finished works of Jesus Christ. And you're relying on yourself. You're not saying, listen, Jesus accomplished this so I can go there. He made this way. You're still resting on yourself. Listen, I stand before you as a simple, uneducated elevator mechanic. And I have complete confidence to go past the veil into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God, because my confidence is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. Remember, what makes prayer easy is not our wits or our understanding, but the tremendous agony of God in redemption. A thing is worth what it cost. Prayer is not what it cost us, but it would co- what it cost God to enable us to pray. So then where does your confidence come from? And how confident are you to enter the holy places? Verse 19 tells us that the redeemed have confidence to enter the holy places by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Nowhere else, nowhere else the way has been made. Does that make sense? It should, it's a truth. And if you're a believer, if you're a true disciple of Christ. That's what you believe. So the next truth that we have is Christians have a mediator. And let's look at uh, verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. A long verse, huh? Since we have a great priest over the house of God. As I wrote this message, it was difficult for me to write Great priest, right? Great priest. It just didn't want to come off as great priest, as we see it here in verse 21, because I wanted to say great high priest, right? He's our great high priest. It just rolls off my tongue. Did you uh, notice it doesn't say great high priest? I had to back up. So the author of Hebrews used a great high priest back in 414, but why the change? Why is it different now? So great priest speaks not only of Christ being our high priest, but it speaks of him being our king. He is the great priest. Jesus is our priestly king. That's what we see there. It alludes to Jesus in his rightly exalted place. Listen to me. His rightly exalted place, seated at the right hand of the Father. Just what we sang this morning. Just what Dan said. Verse 19 references Jesus as the lamb that was slain, and verse 21 references Jesus as both priest and king. But not over all his creation. Did you see what it says? What's it say there? Over the house of God. Over the house of God. Both priest and king over his church. A priest and king over his church hebrews 8 1 and 2 says now the point we are saying is this we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in holy places in the true tent that was set up is the true tent that the lord set up not man remember where we're studying today The author of Hebrews is built to this. So all my references are just going back to what was already studied. His work completed on the cross. It is finished. He is the lamb that was slain. Yes, absolutely. But he sits enthroned in the heavens as priest and king next to God the Father. And as Hebrews 7.25 tells us, listen to this. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The redeemed are children of the king. Jesus lives to intercede for his church. That's the truth. He is there waiting to intercede. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith speaks of the church this way. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So the church, excuse me, the church has their head, King Jesus, the high priest, in the throne room of God that lives to intercede for His church. So how is it that the church is not on their knees always? Always. And how is it that we're called to further his kingdom, to his glory, and we're not on our knees before his throne together always? Because verse 19 says we have confidence. Doesn't it say that? It says that. And verse 21 tells us we have a great priest. Let's turn all the way back to 2 Chronicles. All the way back to 2 Chronicles. A great book. Second Chronicles chapter 7. If we remember, King David gathered the material to build the temple, right? And his son Solomon, King Solomon, built the temple. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and I'm going to read 11 to 14 to you. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, And all Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord, in the house and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. So the Lord tells Solomon, If my people who are called by my name, what does he say? Humble, right? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sins, and heal their land." Humility, humility. God says it right there. If my people will humble themselves and pray. Here we see the Lord tell us that his people don't pray because they lack humility. His church refuses to humble themselves and pray. Ouch. Ouch, Curtis. Ouch. That hurts, right? When we don't come together and pray as a church, it is because as members of His body, we refuse to humble ourselves? Is that why? The author of Hebrews is telling his reader, we have confidence to enter into the most holy place, right? And we know that the great, the great priest, King Jesus, intercedes. Do we not pray together as a church because we're too proud to humble ourselves? Because there has to be a reason, and I think we see the reason in his word, to pray with our brothers and sisters. Listen, if you can humble yourself before God. You can humble yourself before your brothers and sisters. Can you not? Can you not? So when Lisa and I are back serving in FBC Kids and it's snack time, which becomes a scary time. It's scarier than corporate prayer. Right? It's a scary time. So Lisa will pray over the snack. Well, she prays unless Derek's oldest daughter is there. And that little girl throws up her hand every time. Can I pray? Can I pray? Right? And we see this little girl, and she wants to pray corporately. right? And of course we let her do it. She begs to. And you learn so much about discipleship with the kids. So Matthew shares this in the 18th chapter of his gospel, in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. This is pretty amazing, and pay attention to the child. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Jesus says this, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, what's Jesus say? Humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So how does your prayer life, how does your corporate prayer life reveal that you're like a child of the king? Humility. It's humility. Listen, listen, Jesus called the boy, right? Here's the King of kings and Lord of lords calling to his creation, this little boy. And he says, come here. And he can't deny the Lord, but he has the heart of a child. And he comes into the midst of the high priest. And he stood in his presence, humbly, as we should, as a child of the king. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And that's who we need to be. I see this as a fitting time to point out that this passage that we're studying is written not to the individual, but to the church. It's written to the church. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. We had to go back there sooner or later, didn't we? So pay attention now, because it's not written to the individual. Therefore, what is it, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean it's not to the individual. It's not to the reader. Right? It is to his church. The church is called to respond as the body of Christ corporately. A corporate response. How? By drawing near to God. By being unwavering. By stirring up one another and not neglecting to meet together. Oh well, look, Those are Curtis's points that we're going to cover in a minute, huh? Yeah, oddly enough. So we've looked at Christians have confidence and Christians have a mediator. Let's look at the third truth. Christians are to draw near. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When we're invited to draw near with... A true heart, hearts sprinkled clean, and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen to me. They are not things the redeemed must do. Those aren't things the redeemed must do, but things only the redeemed possess. Because the redeemed possess a true heart, hearts that have been sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. As we try to understand verse 22, we must keep the imagery of the high priest entering the most holy place once a year, as he drew near to the symbolic dwelling place of the Lord. And so the imagery is us moving towards the most holy place in prayer. The high priest must not only be physically clean in the Old Testament, but ceremonially clean as well before entering that most holy place. As we come together in prayer, as we approach the throne room of God, as we enter the most holy place, we draw near with a true heart, with a renewed heart, with a heart right with God, a heart seeking His will and His glory. We are to draw near in full assurance of faith. Faith in the triune God. Faith in the finished works of Jesus Christ. This is faith that knows. Listen, it's faith that knows that you can enter the most holy place because as his church, as 1 Peter 2, 9 tells us, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Husbands, fathers, men, wives, mothers, women. If you are born again, you are a part of the royal priesthood. You're part of that royal priesthood. A royal priesthood with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, made clean by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, purged from dead works, robed in his righteousness, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now some see this as being baptized, right? But others say that it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I believe that pure water speaks to that. Right. So as Christians, we're to draw near through the finished works of Jesus Christ. We approach the throne because of what Christ has done. We're to draw near as a church of royal priests, past the holy place, into the presence of God, and we are to pray. That is our job. That's what we're called to do. So then how often? You draw near to God in corporate prayer. And we all did earlier when Dan prayed, right? We were all in corporate prayer. That was part of it. Do we do it in our fellowship groups? Absolutely. Absolutely. In men's and women's ministry? Of course. And we have prayer meetings in church as well. Listen, I told Dan... The greatest thing that he has done as our pastor, and I love Dan. I love Dan. I'm a Dan fan. I'm going to get a t shirt that says Dan Fan. (laughs) I told Dan the greatest thing that he's done as our pastor is getting the elders praying on their knees together on a regular basis. Hands down, the greatest thing that he has done is get the elder board praying together. It's the best. It's a slice of heaven. Once a month before the elder meeting, we pray on our knees. And we go past the holy place to the most holy place. And we pray for each other. And we pray for our wives. And we pray for his church. And we pray for you. And Mark Estep joins us every elder meeting. He's there with us on our knees. And Matt Arntavaros joins us at times. And we've had others. But all church members are invited. And you can come and pray with us. And we would be richly blessed to find you there. The elders meet once a month a second time, just for a time of prayer and breaking of bread together. This is for elders alone and only elders. And it's our fellowship time. And it too is a slice of heaven. At our elder retreat, we prayed for every person by name in this church and it took us a few hours to pray that and that too was a slice of heaven listen the greatest thing that we can do as a church is pray as a church Do you understand that if we're going to do something as a church as a church body and we're called to do many things but the greatest thing that we can do as a church, is pray as a church. Prayer is the conduit that is chosen by God. And if we think we can do it another way, we think that we're smarter than God. He speaks to us through his word. We speak to him in prayer. That's the way it works. Christians are to draw near. Our next truth is Christians are to be unwavering. Let's look at verse 23, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We must remember that God will always only be God. We have to know that. God cannot be anything but God, the fullness of God, always, only, forever. And that's the greatest comfort. Listen, you can't count on Curtis. I'm going to come up short. It happens all the time. But God never comes up short. God is never only anything other than God. He is immutable, which means he's unchanging. God can't change. And we need to rest in that. The author of Hebrews calls this a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor to the soul. Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 6. Just a couple pages. Remember the author built to this. And we're going to read 13 to 20. Hebrews chapter 6. Because God cannot lie. anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place where behind the curtain where jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek i just love saying melchizedek just a great name knowing this allows us to hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering for he who promised is faithful. When we pray corporately, we encourage each other to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering by praying the attributes of God. Because we reaffirm to each other who God is, and he is omniscient and he is long-suffering, and he is just, and he is, excuse me, righteous, and he is holy, and he is outside of time, and he is everywhere all the time, and his steadfast love endures forever. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So Lisa's parents buried two of her brothers. Her brother Mackie lost his battle with cancer before he was school age. After Lisa and I got engaged, my beautiful mother-in-law shared this heartfelt advice for us. She told us know what you believe before the storms of life hit. Know what you believe beforehand. And knowing who God is. Because Curtis changes. And you can't count on Curtis. But God is unchanging. And He is always, only, ever God. And when you approach His throne, He is the same God. Hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering, for He who promised His faith. Corporately praying the attributes of God allows us to hold fast. It anchors our souls. You praying corporately, the attribute, excuse me, the attributes of God may just be the ointment to anchor a brother or sister's soul while they hold fast to the storms of life. Because corporate prayer isn't all about you. You understand that? It's about the King of Kings and his church. And that's why we come together to pray corporately. When we pray corporately, start by praying the attributes of God together. Remind each other who God is. It puts everything in its proper perspective because God is recognized as God and we realize, listen to me, that we're not that we're not God and we know who we need to depend on. This anchors souls. Souls hold fast without wavering. So how often do you pray the attributes of God corporately? Because I do it every time. If you hear me pray, it's always the attributes of God that I start with. And where do you take a brother or sister? when they're going through the storms of life. You take them to the cross. Yeah, and you take them to who God is. Because you can't fix it. And you can't solve it. And you may not have been through it. But you take them to Jesus. And you take them to the cross. And you take them to the throne room of God. That's what we do, church. That's what we do for each other. We help them anchor their soul to the one true God. Corporate prayer edifies the church it does by design the fifth truth is christians are to stir up one another that's a good verse 24 we got to get back to chapter 10 though huh Ten twenty-four says and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works there must be an outworking of corporate prayer. There has to be a product of the corporate prayer as a church when we come together. It has to be something that goes outside your home, outside your fellowship group, outside women's ministry, men's ministry, elder prayer, and our church prayer meetings. And we're told to stir up one another to love and to good works. This stir-up that we see here speaks of excitement and impulse. That's where to stir up each other to, an excitement and impulse. When we're in corporate prayer, we hear the needs of the church. We hear, excuse me, we hear the needs of our brothers and sisters, and we hear the needs of our friends and the community. but we're to consider how to get someone excited, right? To act impulsively in love, that manifests itself in good works. So why is it important to act in love? Why is it, excuse me, why is it important? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. I'm gonna get you out of here. These last, last two are short, so don't have a heart attack. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 to you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So why is it important to act in love? Because anything and everything that we do as a church, if it's not done in love is worthless, absolutely worthless. How important is love? What's 13.13 13 say? First Corinthians 13.13. 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest is love. So what does love look like then? What does love look like? 13 gives us a great answer. Look at verse 4. I'm going to read 4 through 8a anyways. This is what love looks like. This is what love inside the church looks like. This is what love expressed in corporate prayer looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. When a brother or sister asks for prayer over something, you pray they respond, according to 1 Corinthians 13. That's what we want to do. right? We want them to respond in love. And you pray with the heart, described in 1 Corinthians 13. So I shared a prayer request, maybe a year or so ago in fellowship group, and my dear, dear brother Matt Entrevaros, in love, and I love Matt, my dear brother in Christ, he let me know, Curtis, that's just your pride getting in the way. <laughs> right? But that was love. And we're in relationship. And we have prayed together for years. And I needed to hear that because it was truth. Right? And when he prayed, he prayed accordingly. He prayed in love. And it was an ointment to my soul. You see, when we pray corporately for each other, when we share prayer requests, at times our prayer requests may be from a heart in the wrong place, right? But because we've shared it corporately, a brother or sister will pray to stir our hearts to love and good works. As they pray then and even when they leave, they're praying for you, right? So I can come to my brothers and sisters And my heart's in the wrong place. And I share that. But we go to the Lord in prayer and in love. And you hear those biblical truths. Everything changes. You want a Jim Wakeling quote? Curtis always lands on his feet. What he's telling you is is Curtis is wrong. Right? But in time, he's going to land on his feet and he's going to be right. But iron sharpens iron. Right? I've heard it so many times from Jim, you guys don't know. But iron sharpens iron. And that's what happens in corporate prayer. And I think it's a good time to share this, and this is from my dear brother Jim Wakeling as well. And I want you to listen to this. It is a privilege and an honor to be allowed to hear another talk to God. It is a privilege and an honor to be in the most holy place with them. next to another priest in the most holy place another child of the king and what they say to god is sacred and holy those words were set apart for god you have no comment and no mention afterwards right wrong doctrinally whatever the deal is that is a special place and you store those things up in your heart. And if they say something corporate or, or uh, doctrinally wrong, you can pray for that, and pray for opportunities later to speak to them. But they're allowing you, right? Corporate prayer is a safe place. And they are a priest, and you are a priest, and it is a privilege to be there. And you are quiet before a holy God as they share. Before the throne of grace is a safe place. And our priest king in his spirit intercedes for his elect with groanings too deep for words. So he's going to take whatever might have been wrong and it's going to be placed before his throne. Okay? Remember 1 Corinthians 13 when you hear others pray. Good stuff? Good stuff. The last truth. The last truth, Larry. Huh. Christians are not to neglect meeting together. Let's look at... uh, Let's go back to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 25. 25 says, Not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. Commentator sees this as persons actually stepping away from the church. As the, as the church is being persecuted, right? In the end times, the church is going to be persecuted. We're going to see people step away from the persecution. This last verse speaks not about what someone gets from the church, from the assembly of saints, but what their attendance contributes. When you're missing from any church function, Your contribution, listen to me, your contribution to the body of Christ is missing. It's missing. Men's and women's ministry, fellowship groups, worship, children's, church potlucks, church meetings, prayer. What you contribute to the body of Christ, only you can contribute. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you're a member of the body of Christ. And if we're going to function as a church, we're all there together doing what the Lord has called us to do. But we seem to give the church a piece of our time. And for some, it's only Sunday mornings. And for others, it may be fellowship groups too, or men's ministry or women's ministry. But when we see in verse 25 neglecting to meet together, it literally means ceasing to frequent. That's what it means, that they're ceasing to frequent. Someone used to never miss worship, and now we rarely see them. And we see this in in different ministries and gatherings, too. Now, I'm not talking about being gone from time to time, right? I'm talking about ceasing to frequent. Now, this might hit home, but I have to be honest. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have ceased to frequent our church prayer meetings. Of course, we canceled it today or pushed it back a week, right? But we have ceased to frequent this thing. We've had it where it's just one or two. And it's sad. And it breaks my heart. And we're called to encourage one another to attend. All the more as you see the day draw near. And what day? I think it's judgment day. I think it's the Lord's return. Listen, I had a dear brother that used to put it this way. We are contending for souls. That's what we do. But Curtis, I have plans for after church. And Saturday at 7 is too early for men's ministry. And I had to give something up, and so it's fellowship group. Listen, it's not my prayers that sustain me. It is not Dan's prayers that sustain him. It is not Jim's prayers that sustain him. But it is the prayers of our brothers and sisters. And it should be that way for you too. Because when Curtis prays for Curtis, there's always too much Curtis in there, right? I'm like, well, I'm a little bit selfish and I can't get my flesh aside, right? But when my brothers and sisters pray for Curtis, that flesh is gone, right? Curtis's flesh is gone and it's love and it's truth and they take me to the throne of grace, and I am richly blessed. I need your prayers. I need them. It sustains me. Your brothers and sisters sisters, are blessed to hear you beseech the Lord on their behalf. And they're encouraged. Listen, corporate prayer is a slice of heaven. His church is called to be a praying church. And then to meet and pray. Christians are not to neglect meeting together. So let me ask you again, because I started with this question What is your response to corporate prayer? Prayerfully consider and go before his throne. The throne room of God is a scary place, and I don't want to go alone. I'm safer when I got backup, right? Yeah, but you're a child of the king and we are a nation of priests and you belong. May we be a praying church. Let's go to the Lord. Almighty God, we are so richly blessed to find ourselves before your throne and we are comforted by your sovereignty and we are comforted by your omniscience And we are comforted by your immutability. And Lord, I pray that we have learned and come to understand that we have direct access to the Holy of Holies. And you intercede. And you are our priest king. Lord, I pray that this church becomes a praying church, dependent upon you, dependent upon prayer, that you're able to do a mighty work through us because we are obedient and we are your disciples and you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray that you bless everybody and you give them safe travel going home, Lord. And I pray that as we have our prayer meeting next Sunday after church, that we would attend and find ourselves on our knees before your throne. And I pray that all would be richly blessed to your glory and your honor. Amen.